Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm talking to science writer Mary Roach about the curious science of humans at war in her latest book, Grunt. Before we start the show, I just wanted to let you know that Little Atoms will be taking part in the inaugural London Podcast Festival at King's Place in King's Cross on Saturday the 24th of September. I'll be talking to The Guardian's own Hadley Freeman about her fantastic book, Life Moves Pretty Fast, which is about the lessons she learnt from watching 80s movies. So if you think we don't talk about dirty dancing and Ghostbusters enough on Little Atoms, this is the event you've been waiting for. Go to www.kingsplace.co.uk and search for Little Atoms there for tickets. And get in quick, this one's sure to sell out. Mary Roach is the New York Times best-selling author of several popular science books, including Stiff, Spook, Bonk, Packing for Mars and Gulp. And she's written for The Guardian, Wired, BBC Focus, GQ and Vogue. And Mary's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. Mary, welcome back. Thank you, Neil. The Curious Science of Humans at War. So this is going to be a book about bigger and bigger guns and bigger and bigger bombs, right? <laughs> no such luck. No, no guns. Well, the chicken gun, there is one gun, there's a chicken gun, which we could get to or not. But no, no big bombs and guns. This is a military science, but the science of keeping people alive more Mm -hmm. than the science of killing people. That's somebody else's book. (laughs) So let's talk about that decision then, because, you know, obviously people would expect the science of war to be about the science of killing people and blowing things up and destruction. And obviously, you know... Your country is involved in, seems to be an ongoing war at the moment, a never-ending war, I should say. So why that decision to focus on the the life-saving mm-hmm. stuff, I guess? Because it doesn't get covered very much, um, and you can turn on the Discovery Channel, and mm-hmm. somebody's going to be blowing something up at any given moment. National Geographic, the History Channel, I mean, we, we pretty much have the weapons and bombs covered in the media, and... Uh, popular science, well, particularly the, the visual appeal of large things blowing up. Um, it just also didn't personally appeal to me to spend time with um, researchers who look into you know, more effective bullets. Uh, um, I, I think that could be a really interesting book for someone else to write. <laughs> 
<laughs> I just, I just didn't want to do that. And I, and I, I think actually to look at, um, you know, things like extreme heat and exhaustion and food poisoning and flies and sleep deprivation, I think that is in its way kind of a, a different way to kind of present to people kind of the it's something that they already know, which war really sucks. It's just a really... Yeah, I mean, they're more relatable in some respect, perhaps at yeah. a less extreme level, but we've all been on holiday. We've all been to places where there are mosquitoes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, th- I think you know, people are familiar with you know, the, the drama of combat and life and death and gore and all of that, but even when no one's shooting at you, it's just a really difficult, challenging, kind of god-awful thing to endure. So mm-hmm. in its way, the book is kind of a, you know, a, a sideways anti-war book. So how did you come to this story? What was it that first that you first came across that you thought this could make an interesting book? Oddly, I was reporting a story for a Smithsonian magazine in India, in Nagaland, which is way up in the northeast mm. of India. And it was about the world's hottest chili pepper, arguably the world's hottest chili pepper, the Bujolokia, which I'm probably mispronouncing. But so I'm reporting on that and this crazy eating contest where people eat you know, 11 or 12 of these and are rushed away in an ambulance. And while I'm there, somebody says to me, oh, you know, the Indian Defense Ministry weaponized this pepper and made these non-lethal, non-lethal weapon, kind of a, um, like a tear gas spray, mm-hmm. a powder bomb that kind of you would use to clear a room or disperse a mob, whatever. Anyway, so I thought I need to report on that. I went over to the, the lab, uh, science labs that the Indian Defense Ministry has and was just being my usual curious geek self, wandering around, there was someone working on a leech repellent, which I found kind of fascinating, which may, yeah, I guess if, if your soldiers deal with leeches, you're going to come up with a leech repellent. And that kind of was the seed that made me think, well, this military science could be interesting and, and broader than you would think and a little more esoteric and less straightforward than you would think. So that's, got, that's what got me thinking military science. I want to start with clothes, as you do in the book, the developments in the military uniforms. And there's a few things you look at here. Let's start with um, the quest to make better flame-retardant uniforms. Yeah. What happens there? There's a whole lab at... Uh, Natick, well, Natick Labs in Massachusetts is where all the uniform stuff is done. It's basically the accessories of being a soldier, the tents, the uniforms, the food. And there's a, a lab... If you're somebody who comes up with textiles, high-tech textiles, and you've got a new flame-repellent, flame-resistant fabric, you send it off to Natick Labs, and then they start testing it. And the first thing they do is they've got this big, scary laser, which is actually labeled Mm -hmm. Big Scary Laser. (laughs) And they put just a a thread in there, and they vaporize it, essentially, uh, and then analyze what gases are coming off, because you don't want a garment that is going to release deadly gas. You know, the, the garment could be more deadly than the flames. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure it's not going to release some toxic gases. So they'll do that, first of all. And then they start to look at uh, how much you know, heat transfer, how much, you know, they can, they're sort of like a teacup IED, you know, sort of a, you know, let, this is a scaled down version of the kind of heat that you get in a blast. And they're uh, putting the, fa- the fabric in between. There's a, a sensor and then the the source and, and looking at how much goes through and what kind of and what there's sort of a formula for how much what kind of a burn for a second or third degree you would have with that fabric so they can test it that way and then they get to the fun part which is actually outfitting mannequins there's a mannequin that kind of walks through fire and there's another one that just kind of bursts into flame and they can 
look at the day that I was there. They were looking at heat transfer from some of the bling that officers might wear, you know, like a, you know, little medals or, or buttons or th- you know, things that aren't just the fabric. That could end up being protective or it could end up making the burn worse. So that happened to be what they were looking at uh, when I was there. It was like, I think it wasn't metal, it was a plastic they were looking at. It's sort of like a name tag or something. Yeah, not, not the flame tunnelness of like gold braid or something. Well, yeah, they probably have looked at that. They've probably looked at, they've looked at everything, believe me. Yeah. Um, well, that's a, a, you know, a investigation that would have applications outside of the military as well, of course. Yeah. And, and another one of those, which sometimes sounds more interesting to me, is... Um, this idea of self-cleaning uniforms yeah. as well. So what sort of steps are they taking in that direction? Yeah, the self-cleaning. The, the, the public affairs guy got me interested because he said, oh, yeah, we have self-cleaning underwear. I'm like, I'm there. <laughs> but as it turns out, it's not. Uh, underwear is not what they were, were interested in. It was a chem bio suit. It's a suit that would be super repellent of any liquid you know, in a you know, chemical biological attack. If it, it, it's a, They call it super shedding. Mm-hmm. So it's... Um, it mimics a high surface tension situation, you know, like mercury or something, or waters, that something that beads up and rolls off and leaves almost no residue at all mm-hmm. on the fabric. So they're looking at trying to get a fabric that will um, make almost anything beat up and roll off. And that way, the garment itself doesn't need to do as much absorbing of nasty stuff. It's still got a lay, you know, probably a layer of activated carbon, um, but if the if the outer layer sheds most of it, then you're in better shape. So they... They were testing that the day that I was there. And that also means it hasn't got to be as heavy, which is yeah, useful right. if you're in a full body suit. Yeah, it doesn't have to be as heavy or as hot, which is really important if you're in Afghanistan, say, in summertime, uh, there summertime. So that's, um, yeah, that's an advantage, particularly with protective gear. If it's really heavy and uncomfortable, uh, soldiers tend to not put it on when they should, and so that, that's not... That's not cool. And then the other thing, slightly moving on from um, clothing itself, but you also take a look at the um, the various sort of grooming regimes or rules, and especially, I guess, that are affecting there being more and more women in the military now. There seems to be a lot of rules about, you know, what you can do with your hair and how you can tie it up, and for instance. Yeah, I wish I had a copy of them right in front of me, but they're really quite amazing because there's there. I mean, this is the level of detail. This is the, this was the army grooming policies, which the public affairs guy sent to me, unbidden. In fact, he's like, "You'll enjoy this," <laughs> and it's uh, it's so detailed. For example, there's there uh, for for uh, sideburns. Okay, there's the not just how long they can be, but they cannot be flared nor tapered, and each individual hair cannot ex- protrude from the face. I think it was more than a quarter inch or an eighth of an inch. Like you would get out, someone could, your commanding officer could, could get a ruler out and, and like cite you for a, a hair that, hairs that were too long. Uh, and there's uh, oddly no beards, but there's mustaches as long as the mustache doesn't exceed uh, the width of the mouth. So you can't have one of those sort of droopy handlebar mustaches. No Fu Manchus. It actually says no Fu Manchus. I guess there's not that many soldiers really advocating to be wearing Fu Manchus these days, I imagine. But but there were a lot of them for women. There's kind of a built-in sexism there. Mm -hmm. I think partly because women do more with their hair. So there's a lot more to forbid so that you can't have a... You know, a diagonal sort of ornamental part. You can't you can't have um, hair that it, it's sticking up too high, and it, it comes out sort of. Um, there was some controversy because it ends up coming down harder on African American women who do more things to control their hair mm-hmm. and to you know whether it's cornrows or 
what have you. So it sort of sounded like they were kind of picking unfairly on African American women. So anyway, that was sort of a controversy. But the uh, there was something about scrunchies. Scrunchies, yeah, and no like butterfly ornaments, no scrunchies, <laughs> or, or maybe it was not glitter scrunchies. Anyway, the bottom line was, I, I believe, the bottom line is nothing that really allows you to show your individuality because the whole idea with a uniform is that uh, you're promoting uniformity so you have you know you, you, it's not a group of individuals so much as a a, a mass organism an, an army that is you know that you are working together you're thinking of your unit and not yourself so i guess that's sort of where all this comes from but some of it's practical for example beards are a problem with gas masks you can't mm-hmm. get a good seal so there's some things that are practical I'm Eric Schlosser, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. It brings us nicely on to heat. You mentioned Afghanistan in the summer, and, and one of the reasons why soldiers might not choose to wear the protective gear that they're given. Um, what other things are, you know, what other dangers are there of extreme heat to the military? Uh, well, heat stroke can be deadly, uh, and, it, and it can kind of get out of control quickly. There's a, I mean, heat injury and heat illness is sort of a broad label for everything from just fainting to all the way to heat stroke, which if, if you don't deal with it quickly and get out of the heat and cool down, you die. And there have been, oh, it's in the book, how many? <laughs> There's, you know, more than you'd really want. It's like, what was it, 475 deaths? Anyway, it's in the book. <laughs> But um, so, uh, and you can imagine, I mean, you, you, you've got a lot of equipment you're carrying and you're wearing body armor, which isn't exactly breathable, uh, and you're in this intense heat. So, and you may have diarrhea, which dehydrates you as well. So there's all kinds of things dehydrating you. And heat illness happens when you, know, you only have so much bodily fluid, which, you know, you've got, sweat is made from plasma, the clear portion of blood. So um, you're, if you're hot and you're working hard, you know, that your body wants to send blood and oxygen to your muscles because they're doing the hard work but at the same time it needs to send blood or plasma to you know to your skin to cool you down so there's this competition and if the competition gets too extreme then the body uh, the body starts to shut down like oh i guess we don't need digestion we'll shut that down oh we don't need the brain we don't you know it starts to just uh deal with the competition in a way that uh, can become uh, system failure you saw there was an experiment going on that you that you witnessed where there was the like, guy on a treadmill and his mum who was the who was the scientist. What was going on there? That was yeah, that was at um, USIS, which is the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. It's near uh, Walter Reed Army Institute of Research near DC, Silver Spring area. They have a cook box, which is a, a chamber that you can dial the humidity and the heat up as much as you want and put someone in on a treadmill or not, uniform or not, however you want to do it. And they were looking at, they were taking blood draws from this, these folks, and they were do, you know, they had a rectal temperature, which they really love, uh, the, not. So they were, they were looking at, is there some sort of simple biomarker that we could, you know, because there's a lot of individual differences in, in how you deal with heat and how likely you are to succumb to heat injury. And so if they could find a way to identify people easily uh, before sending them off into, you know, the midday sun with a heavy load carrying, you know, and having body armor on, etc. If they could identify them, keep them out of that sort of situation or make sure they hydrate extremely well, you know, that would be a plus. That'd be a life-saving technique. So they were, but at that point, the only thing that they knew for sure was that 
people who are the, the fitter you are, the better you deal with heat stroke. But uh, there seems to be some genetic difference that they'd love to figure out. So that's what they were working on. I'm not particularly wanting to, to dwell too much on the uh, on the rectal thermometer. There was this real comedy in that they're literally connected to a machine yeah. as well. So it's not like a you know just a thermometer. It's got a yeah, it's a got curly a, wire that goes off to a machine somewhere. So basically, yeah. the, <laughs> and the machine that it goes off to is it's about the size of a heavier the paperback book, but heavier, really almost like the, a brick, not quite that heavy. But anyway, so if you if you're I don't know if wearing is the right word, if you're plugged into it and you forget, and the and the, the device is on the counter and you walk away. It's embarrassing because uh, uh, the either you pull it off onto the floor and break it, or it comes out and you have to go put it back in. And I say this from experience. <laughs> moving on from heat, you also look at noise and how how the military deal with noise. A war, it's obvious to say, is incredibly loud, deafening explosions and gunshots and disorientating. And how do they deal with that? What? Oh, sorry. <laughs> This, my husband does that joke every single time. It's so dumb. I just had to do it. Sorry. <laughs> and I fall for it every time. Yeah, well, military noise is... Yeah, the, war is loud. The, the, the challenge is not just that it's loud, but that if you protect your ears with earplugs or ear cuffs, now you've lost situational awareness, which is a huge deal for a soldier. You want to know who's coming up behind you slowly in a car or, uh, you know, what is that the sound of someone loading a rifle in the, around the corner? You also want to be able to communicate with your fellow soldiers and say you're on a foot patrol and this is something I didn't know, not being a military person. You're w- walking 15 feet apart because the kill radius of a grenade or that particular fragmentation grenade is about 15 feet. So in order to keep, you, you don't want people in a small cluster because mm-hmm. then all of them could be taken out. So you're walking quite far away from your fellow soldiers. And in order to you know, have a conversation or hear them saying something important, you don't want to have earplugs in. And the other thing is that noise tends to happen quickly you can't predict it so suddenly there's loud noises and the, you know, or a firefight breaks out you're not going to go oh, just a moment I'm going to let me get my earplugs roll them down and pull back on the outer portion of the ear to properly insert them hold on please <laughs> so that that's not going to happen uh, and, and likewise uh, some of the transportation is really loud like the uh, helicopters or the armored personnel carriers those are loud but you're in there for hours, uh, so a couple hours, sure, you're aware you're hearing protection. But I talked to a few special operations guys who had hearing loss, and they were like, yeah, it was, it was hot. They're uncomfortable after a while, the, the cuffs, and, and I didn't have it on. And that's when there were explosions, and that's when, and now I have hearing loss. And so how serious is the, the amount of hearing? I mean, all soldiers must suffer some... If, they, if they're ever engaged in combat, must suffer some hearing loss. But then yeah. how serious yeah. is the problem of, of, you know, serious, almost total hearing loss? Well, hearing disabilities, it's a billion dollar a year payout for the, for the VA, Veterans Administration in the mm-hmm. U.S. It's the number one expense. It's kind of ubiquitous. And it's, it's, you know, it's one of those invisible injuries where people don't, because they don't see it, you don't have a titanium prosthetic, you don't have a disfiguring burn, you don't really... The civilians don't really think about that, but you know, if you have enough hearing loss that you're unable to communicate with your family, you know, or you're having to get prosthetic hearing devices, I mean, it, it's a, it's life impacting, you know, and, and and really common. 
So, um, it, yeah, if some obviously some branches get it more than others. Special operations, artillery, <laughs> that's, those, are, those guys uh, have a lot of hearing loss, yeah. One of the theme might be a strong word, but, you know, one of the recurring motifs in this book is the idea of, you know, the special force, big macho, wide as he is tall, special forces soldier, being a bit sort of contemptuous of the, the sort of nerds back at home coming up with all of these new little sort of inventions to make things slightly better for them. And I presume, again, with something like that, you know, there must be reluctance to put earplugs in because it just seems like a bit... Well, I, I think they, well, you know, the, the thing that's available now is something called T-caps, which is these ear cuffs that have a microphone built in, and they're, they're amazing. In the, I've worn them. I want a pair because now you have bionic hearing. You can, it filters out loud noise. It attenuates loud noises, um, but it magnifies, say, a human voice. So you put them on, and suddenly you can hear a conversation. You know, that's better than the, you're, you're like the bionic woman, like dee 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 dee. Like suddenly you're list, eavesdropping on someone across the street. They're amazing. Uh, special operations guys love them, particularly for not for the communications because there's a, a mouthpiece and a wireless communication system, so you can communicate with someone in a helicopter overhead or even someone back on base. So they love those. So it's not that they're worried about their hearing. In fact, not just special operations, but Artillery and various people I talked to talked about how if you didn't have hearing loss, it meant you hadn't done anything. It was kind of a badge of honor, like you'd be some sort of pussy if you if you had perfect hearing. If you came out of the military with perfect hearing, you'd be suspect. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Mary Roach and we're talking about her book Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. And Mary, there's a chapter in the book where you look at the, the dangers posed to vehicles by IEDs, these sort of you know, bombs planted by the side of the road, um, how we can protect the, you know, the bottom of these vehicles from blasts and things. What sort of things are being done there? Yeah, the, the work that I was covering for the book was, in fact, for uh, not per roadside, but the, the more recent uh, version of that, the under... The, the in, actually, the, the, yeah, because insurgents, they used to put them on the side of the road and um, you could up-armor the vehicles to kind of deal with that. So they thought, huh, well, we'll stick them in the roadway. So um, now there's these tremendous underbody blasts. That, I mean, you can go on YouTube and see these just unbelievable, these massive personnel carriers blown into the air, flipping over three times because they put, you know, they bury massive bombs, IEDs, improvised explosive devices. So what they were doing, it was, I was at Aberdeen Proving Ground where they test a lot of weapons, but also the vehicles that are supposed to keep you safe from weapons. They showed me a bunch of things that had been done to, uh, to make them safer. It really kind of simple stuff like making the chassis V-shaped so it deflects the energy off to the side so you don't have this massive bolus of energy smashing right into the chassis to which the seats are attached. So you know, the energy was going straight into the seat into the soldiers. So they tended to get these horrible heel injuries where the fat pad would explode and the heel would shatter. That, 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 oh, there's oh. a lot of horrible injuries in this book, but it, that particular that one, one sounds yeah, appalling. It's a, yeah. Like it's, it's a life-changing injury and it seems exactly. like nothing. Yeah, you'd think, oh, yeah, your heel, oh, dude, your heel, bro, you broke your heel. Well, you try walking without that fat pad. It's this, it's this fat that's really fibrous and dense. It doesn't exist anywhere else on the body. You can, you know, you can reach down and feel it on your foot, and it's this important piece of the anatomy of the foot because, you know, think about running. You're hitting, you're striking your your heel, on, you're landing on your heel with several times your body weight. So if you don't have any padding, you know, the heels, the, the bone is just going to go straight through the skin. So you need this padding. Uh, and if it's, you know, if the, and if the heel shatters, oh God, you read some of the. They used to call it deck slap mm, in, the, in the World War II. Yeah, World War One, Two, both maybe. Uh, that you'd have an underwater mine would go off, and uh, if you're standing on the deck of a boat or a sub, it would just just smash you in the foot. And they they had a lot of heel injuries, and they would talk about you know trying to the bone would be completely fragmented and trying to mold it like it's clay, just sort of smush the pieces back together and try to make it heal and. A lot of time, oh gosh, it was like a, I forget the, the. It's a very high amputation rate. Just after that surgery, it just doesn't it doesn't work well. There's a lot of pain still in walking. So any any way you can you know, mitigate that transfer of energy from the explosion straight to the vehicle, straight to the person. So they, they, the V sh- or double V shaped sometimes, but also not having the seats bolted to the bottom of the vehicle that helps. So now they're you know bolted to the side or the top, and and then it's sort of on on pistons, kind of like on suspension, like automobile suspension, that helps. The thing that I was reporting on when I, when I was there was uh, called We A Man, which is the Warrior Injury Assessment Mannequin. It's a crash test dummy specifically for underbody blast because there's no parallel in the automotive world. You know, uh, you know car crashes are either head-on or side impact or rear-enders, and in no case does the, the impact really approximate anything like a bomb going off underneath you. So there... Um, 
they have been doing that the work that was done you know back in the 60s with cars to come up with a crash test dummy they've been, they're doing that now at Aberdeen and that you know to make a crash test dummy that is high fidelity that really tells you what would happen to a human being in this case you need to work with cadavers so of course you know calling Mary Roach <laughs> cadaver woman <laughs> so they were they were doing cadaver tests on a, they weren't blowing up a vehicle because those are expensive but they had a you know a seat kind of a, a seat set up on a platform and then some C4 explosive underneath under the platform which they would then set off and then they would go and do an autopsy on the cadaver I mean it's not blowing it into bits it really when you watch it in real time it just looks like they took a speed bump too fast but when you slow it down you see this tremendous flailing of limbs and it's happening too fast for the body to accommodate it you know the you know, bodies can stretch and give it a, a lot but um they need the, they need time to do it mm-hmm. so if you watch this you know slowed down it almost looks like modern dance because uh, the body's fine as long as you you know move slowly and fluidly but if it's just boom in a split second it can't keep up and it breaks so you know fractures and things not not necessarily breaking apart i mean if in, you know in the extreme yes breaking apart so they so they go and they do an autopsy look at you know, this amount of explosive in this distance, whatever, you'd have this kind of injury. So then all that information informs the dummy. So now if some contractor says, here's this armored personnel carrier that everyone will be completely safe, they can say, oh, yeah, well, let's put our dummy in here and let's see what happens. Similar to what the automotive industry has had for some time. So that's what they were working on there, the bunch of bioengineers. People obviously do get injured and... One of the, I don't know, I guess ironies of, of modern combat, modern medicine, is that you know we've been able to, as time gone on, save people from greater and greater injuries, injuries that would have been fatal a few years ago, which means that there are many more multiple amputees back in the world. And, and you know, one of the things that happen, as well as losing limbs, soldiers get genital injuries as well. Mm-hmm. Which you talk about in the book, you talk about, I suppose, the, um, the, the sort of after effects of that, but also transplants, which we'll get onto in a moment. But clearly, you know, it's, it's one thing coming back and trying to cope with life out of the military, having lost a leg or both legs or two legs with an arm. But there are, you know, there are special considerations when one has lost your genitals. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's like you said, it's an injury that's much more common now because... The medical care is is faster to arrive and more effective, and also the the explosions are they're larger. The bombs are bigger, uh, so you've got these tremendous injuries and people surviving, which is something they wouldn't have survived before. So the the number of in, uh, genital injuries is, has been climbing, and so they've um, had to really look at you know what are like reconstructive techniques. Interestingly, some of the um, some of the reconstructive surgery, the, the, there's been collaboration between the, the transgender world and the military because those are the surgeons who know how to <laughs> rebuild a penis or, or to build one from scratch because you are building from scratch. You're taking, you know, um, in, in the, the, there are several techniques, but the one that I was had explained to me, you're taking skin from the, uh, the underside of the arm because that's hairless for one thing. You, know, you don't want a hairy penis probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean... I'm just assuming. Well, there so is they an say, issue there. There was, there was to well, do with the, um, the urethra as well. Yeah, that's right. The, the, the ure- yeah, if you can rebuild a urethra, um, you can do that from any hairless tissue. But the, what the, the, one of the things that they've been using, the, uh, I observed a urethra repair. This, this man 
um, had damage to the urethra, but the rest, you know, he, he, it was mostly the, uh, the urethra had been, you know, severed from, it was a shrapnel. And they take uh, tissue from the inside of the mouth, and not only is that hairless, but it's used to moisture. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to degrade when it's exposed to moisture, urine. So that, I mean, that, that was, I thought it was pretty cool. And it wasn't, I had no idea. I came into the operating room and I expected to see, you know, they put the cloths over everything, but the part they're working on and they're up at his head and I'm like, am I in the wrong operating room? Is this not a penis surgery? Uh, but in, in fact, they first were harvesting um, a rectangle of tissue from his cheek to then roll up and build a urethra with. So anyway, yeah, there are lots of things you can do. The, the, uh, you're, you're building it from scratch. The, the one ingredient that isn't available is uh, the erectile tissue. Um, and so for that, they're using implants, which have been around for erectile dysfunction for quite a while. It's a bit like a pump. Yeah, it's a, a, a saline pump. Well, there's different models, but I think last time I heard about it, it's a... Um, there's a little bladder of saline that they, I guess, they put in the scrotum and a little squeezable pump. So then you can pump it in and then let it out. So that's how you do your erection. There is a little bit of erect, there's erectile tissue in the nose, but nobody's, I, I, yeah, I asked around, like, hey, can't you take that erectile tissue? Because when you have a cold, it's kind of an erection of the nose. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not with blood and as in an erection, but it's, it's erectile tissue. And they kind of looked at me like, yeah. Mm, there's not a whole lot in there, and um, yeah, nobody's tried that. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm hoping that one day someone will read <laughs> Grunt and go, "By God, that's an excellent idea. Let's try that." That be someone with a huge nose. <laughs> somebody with a huge nose. <laughs> I'm Caitlin Doty. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. There's a feeling that comes out of the, this being, you know. You're lucky to survive, you know, you've been blown up, you're lucky to survive. Um, that's really all you should wish for. This idea coming back from like the sort of top brass and they weren't necessarily sympathetic to the idea. Yeah. That, I mean, you, know, you described it as, like, they described like getting any, being able to get an erection after that injury as like the icing on the cake. Yeah. Which clearly isn't, you know, what, what sort of aftercare is, I suppose, not being done really, but you do talk to some people who are trying to, yeah. to sort of do that, to soldiers who come back with that sort of injury right, and yeah. want to basically take up their lives again with their wives. Yeah, yeah. there, there, there has been a... There's a woman named Christine Delorier who was a nurse at Walter Reed, and this has sort of been a personal cause of hers. She told me that there isn't a staff position, full-time staff position, just as a, a sex therapist or intimacy counselor, however you, want to just, however you want to say it. And I said to her, is that a budget issue? There's just not enough money and it's not a priority. And she said, it's that, but it's also a discomfort on the part of the military organization with focusing on sexuality. Yeah, that it's a lifestyle issue. And there are people at Walter Reed, there's a, there's a, um, uh, andrologist, a surgeon who, who, you know, he, he, there's the urology guy for the penis, the andrology guy is the testicles and the reproductive equipment. And he's very passionate about this too. And he said, you know, people say, people will say like, oh, it's important that they walk. That's important. And, and he'll he, he's going, no, they can sit in a wheelchair. That's not, they don't have to walk. And, you know, and they're like, oh, how could you say that? It's important that they walk. And he said, it's important that they have sex too. You know, I mean, it, there's a, a, a real sense that, oh, that's, that's a, yeah, as you said, icing on the cake. And um, I asked her, I said, what are the divorce, what's the divorce rate like in this population? And she said, divorce rate? Try suicide rate. 
No, it's a it's a it's a big deal, and um, you know, I'm, she's hoping just by blabbing about this <laughs> on different podcasts on the radio that, that uh, someone will kind of uh, address that and that they'll hire her or anybody, you know, to to and ju- and just to make it sort of um, uh, part of aftercare. Just very matter of fact, there is this book uh, of just it's, um, I forget the exact title. It's in Grunt, but it's. Essentially, uh, sexual advice for somebody, uh, uh, not just, it's for, for, for amputees and veterans, not, not just a you know, genital injury, but let's say you're missing two legs and a hand. Well, what kind of positions work? What kind of um, hardware can you buy? What sort of, I mean, there's a, there are resources that people aren't naturally aware of. Mm-hmm. And so there's this book, it's like, here, here's some really helpful stuff. And it's just making it straightforward and not making it kind of a hush-hush embarrassing or tee thing it's like here this this might be helpful here's this book it's a booklet you know so that's been great that there's this resource but you know that's been sort of done on the side just by people who care a lot about it it hasn't really been something that the pentagon has embraced the way they might there are lots of injuries, obviously, that happen to soldiers out in the field, serving military people, and there are medics that are out there with them to, to sort of deal with some of those injuries if possible. But, of course, this is a war. There's, you know, bombs going off all around and snipers shooting at them. And performing an operation in a yeah. in an operating theatre is a stressful enough job. Mm-hmm. How do you, you know, stuff somebody's guts back in or tie up a tourniquet and somebody's you know pumping femoral artery when there's people shooting at you exactly that's um it's a difficult thing to show someone how to do there's a concept called stress inoculation which is uh, if you have your medics your medic trainees if you if you have them try these different techniques in a simulated combat environment make it as stressful as you can without actually shooting live weapons at them uh, then hopefully they'll be a little better equipped to deal with the real deal so uh, there's a place in uh, outside Camp Pendleton near San Diego Southern California uh, near the where the marine there's a marine corps base and it's a former movie studio there was a, this guy Stu Seagal or Seagal Seagal I think has uh, he used to do action films and, and combat films and so he's 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 set up for pyrotechnics loud noises explosions he's very good at that and then they bring in actors in some cases amputee actors and they outfit them with very realistic gore like they put a sleeve over the stump and they've got it attached to a uh, uh, like a camelback, a backpack with, with, you know, I think it was th- three liters of, of stage blood and a pump, and it's pumping realistically. And so, the, and there's a remote control for the bleed so that if the person who's doing the tourniquet doesn't do it quickly enough, the actor bleeds out and dies, and then his the instructor yells at you. And so it's all designed to be really stressful. Meanwhile, there's there's loud explosions going off, not real ones, but sound effects and dust hits to make it look like someone actually is shooting a rifle close by. So there's this whole package of stress. Uh, and part of the, part of the, it's not just the, you know, s- stressful in and of itself. It's just also the, the fight or flight response when you're, mm. when you're frightened, um, you know, your, your body responds by sending blood to your, your muscles so you can run away quickly. And um, your frontal lobe doesn't get, your brain doesn't get the, the, you know, the decision-making parts of the brain, the, you know, the kind of cognitive you know, decision-making and, and fine, fine-tuning stuff doesn't get the same uh, amount of blood that it normally does. And so you're essentially, as somebody described it to me, fast, strong, and dumb. And that's great if you need to run away or climb a tree or hurl a rock, but if you need to do, you know, cut a, an emergency airway 
or um, do a needle decompression and get it in the right spot, somebody has a collapsed lung, you don't want to be cognitively impaired. So that's another reason to try to get medics accustomed to however they can, uh, coping, focusing, not getting tunnel vision. That's another thing that happens. You get tunnel vision and you sort of lose your the larger picture. So, uh, so, so yeah, it's amazing that these people are uh, able to do what they're doing in the scenario that they're doing it, and that's how you train. But there's other ways to train, too. There's um, people train on anesthetized livestock. They go to emergency rooms in inner city where there's lots of gunshots and knifings and things. And So there, there are various ways that the military tries to kind of expose people to a little bit of what they're going to be dealing with. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Mary Roach about Mary's latest book, Grunts, The Curious Science of Humans at War. And Mary, you, you brought up the difficult subject of diarrhoea early on in the interview. How much of a problem is it? It's, cha- uh, it's changed over time. It used to be a huge issue. Uh, dysentery and diarrhoea killed way more uh, soldiers than bullets and bombs. Uh, the Mexican-American War, I think it was seven to one. Um, deaths from disease and dis- mostly dysentery, but also malaria versus one combat death, seven to one. In Vietnam, four to one at hospital admissions for disease versus combat injuries. So it used to be it used to be a huge deal, partly because of the uh, you, you had a situation where you you've got a camp out in a field in the summer, open pit latrine, flies landing in the crap, flying over to the mess area, which isn't screened, landing in the food, depositing pathogens from their feet, you know, inoculating the food, which sits in the sun for hours, and then, you know, it multiplies, the pathogens multiply exponentially, and now you've got hundreds of sick, dehydrating soldiers. So so diarrhea used to be huge. I mean, diarrhea, you, diarrhea would lose you your battles. I mean, you would, it was a huge factor. Now, of course, now Walter, it was Walter Reed who figured out the, the whole idea that the, the mechanical vector of the flies would land and then just fly over and deposit the bacteria or virus, whatever, uh, onto the food. Uh, he figured that out. And once that connection was made, hygiene became a big issue. You had, you had fly control units, you had sanitation officers. There was actually, in one of the uh, World War II battles in North Africa, they, there was a fly death quota. Every soldier had to kill 50 flies a day. There were these posters like, this is the enemy, and a picture of a big fly with a bayonet in its gut. You know, so nowadays, diarrhea is mostly an issue for, in special operations, small teams going out into the countryside, talking with villagers, village elders, trying to get information, what, you know, the, with all, whatever the, their assignment is. They're far from base, and they're eating, say, goat that hasn't been refrigerated or water that hasn't been treated, and they get food poisoning and pretty severe diarrhea really often, twice as often as the folks who are back on base. So you said earlier on that you'd, you'd written to the, in the military requesting to speak to some special forces soldiers that might have experienced trouble with diarrhea. So how did that go? <laughs> that was, I think, perhaps the 
biggest and strangest reporting challenge of my career because at camp, I was at Camp Lemonnier, North Africa. There's a lot of counterinsurgency work. And these guys, these special operations guys, they have their own. They're in a restricted zone. No one can go in unless they have full clearance. So I couldn't, the only time I could find them to talk to them was mealtime, which is, as you can imagine, an awkward time to sit down with someone and bring up diarrhea, particularly some kind of imposing kind of macho. I mean, they are these, at least at Camp Lemonier anyway, these guys stand out. They're the only ones with, they're allowed to have beards so they can fit in with the Muslim population where all the men have beards. So they stand out. They're very, they have this kind of just this air to them and they're not easy guys to just say hey sit down with and chit chat you know they they're they keep to themselves they really only come out to eat and as one guy in the public affairs office pointed out and to steal our women <laughs> so uh, yeah so i had um uh, and, and they eat quickly they come in they sit down they eat and they leave they don't hang out they don't chit chat they don't socialize with the rest of the base so i had to kind of move in it was it was like a mission okay go so I went across with this public affairs guy, and I, ma- I forced him to introduce us. And it was, you know, it was a, it's sort of an awkward. He initially he saw us coming, and he said, "I'm done. I'm leaving," and started to pick up his tray. And I said, "Oh, God, actually, I'm just I'm an author I'm here. I've got a I'm just I'm working on a chapter about um, diarrhea, and I know, you know, it sounds like a silly topic." And he goes, "It's not. Sit down. You're welcome to sit down." So we had this really interesting conversation. He couldn't really give me the there I was and, and describe the mission because it's classified, but he was very candid about what that's like. And um, he's he, like, yeah, I've soiled my pants in Iraq. I've soiled my pants in Afghanistan. It happens. It happens all the time, and you just keep going, so to speak. You keep, you keep going with the mission. You know, you, 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 it's sort of a, you know, I said, you do? You just keep, he goes, yeah, it's kind of a life or death situation. If you're in a hide, you know, if you're in sort of hide, you know, in, in sort of a dugout area with, uh, they, they they tend to use a lot of Ziploc bags, and they'll put kitty litter in Ziploc bags, and they go through a lot of kitty litter. There was a point where some higher up in the special operations command was like, "Why are we requisitioning kitty litter?" <laughs> it's like, obviously, you haven't been out there <laughs> because it's highly absorbent. There's a great example in here of a hunt for a, a technology that would aid the military that is just like, turns out to be nonsensical. I'm talking about the, uh, tell us the story of the, the quest for a successful shark repellent. Oh, First of all, yeah. why was that necessary? Yeah, this was, this was World War II and this was the first time uh, American troops were uh, flying or sailing over or on temperate tropical Waters, you know, it was in World War One. It was, you know, farther north. There wasn't really, there weren't a lot of sharks. So, because it's it's shark territory, uh, the the flyers were there was all this hysteria about sh- like shark, like sharks, and they couldn't. They were having trouble keeping flyers. Flyers didn't. They didn't want. They. You know, it's funny. They, you're willing to risk being shot down and dying, but. God forbid you should be attacked by a shark. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't want to know no sharks for me. It's a, to me, it was kind of a, it was a weird hysteria, but it seemed to have gripped the, the troops to the extent that the, the Navy uh, contracted some folks in the OSS, forerunner to the CIA, said, come up, find us something, some compound we can throw into the water that will repel sharks. And there was sort of an acknowledgement that even if it doesn't work that well, it will make them feel better. It's a pink pill, as they, as they put it. It's it's a psychological reassuring object to have in your life raft or mm-hmm. in your you know, your life vest or whatever it is. You know, they wanted a small cake 
you know, little just something would dissolve in the water. And dozens and dozens of compounds were tried. Uh, they were tried on captive sharks in tanks. They were taken out to the waters off Ecuador, and they were tried and found ultimately really not to do much good. There was one, there's one, uh, Captain Baldridge, I think it was, he, this guy, I talked to him, he's in his 90s now. He's like, yeah, um, we, he did this study where you, if you, you looked at the time it takes, you know, for a shark to kind of close in and attack you, uh, and the time it takes for a cake of this repellent to dilute to the point where it's not, it's completely ineffective. You just, it's, it's just doing nothing for you. And then as it turned out, the other, the other, the other thing here, the other uh, fact that makes this all kind of absurd is that no one at that point, there was no recorded cases in the Navy of, of anybody being attacked by sharks. It just, it wasn't happening. It does, sharks are, are pretty shy. They're not, I think it's like 2,500, this is the international shark attack file, which has been going since this project. Like 2,500 down flyers and I think 12 instances of injury or death. So it's just, it's not common and it, it's very difficult to, to repel a shark, but it's also not particularly necessary. But then that's interesting, isn't it? Because like, you know, as well as like, you know, jaws making everybody scared to go into the yeah. sea... Like, we all immediately think of Robert Shaw telling that story about, you know, the sharks eating all of the, all of the sailors as well. You know, is, that, is, oh. it, is, it just a, is it just a myth? The USS Indianapolis yeah. you're talking about. It, it, you know, though they, they were a lot, there was a good number of mutilated bodies, but if you look at this, the accounts of survivors... for the dead bodies. Yeah, that's right. And, mm. and in, in the, the Navy did, sponsored a lot of research after the shark repellent fiasco. They sponsored a lot of research into, you know, what attracts them, is it, does blood attract them? Do, does thrashing attract them or repel them? You know, what is what's attracting them and what's repelling them? Um, so they did they did a tremendous amount of work in that area and basically found that they're very shy. They'd much rather what attracts them is the scent of uh, uh, the scent of a stressed out fish. They want their prey, and they want their prey to be injured in an easy target. Mm -hmm. So distressed grouper water was, in fact, in one of the, my favorite experiments. Uh, they compared, they had a shark in an enclosure, and they had distressed grouper water, and they had quiescent grouper water. And the sharks went, you know, made a beeline for the distressed grouper water because it was the, it, it's the, the, the blood and guts and, and panic in, from a fish that's what they want because that's it's it's an e it's an easy meal they're not interested in they they put a bleeding rat in the tank not interested mammal blood not an attractant it's just it's not their normal prey uh and in fact at one point the the rat accidentally kicked you know in its efforts to escape kicked the shark in the nose the shark turns around and runs away bear in mind these are not great whites these are you know lemon sharks dusky sharks black tip sharks they're smaller, but which is, you know, most of the cases of... Yeah, you talk to someone who's, like, there's a guy who's a videographer I interviewed. He's like, well, that depends on you know, what shark are we talking about. Mm -hmm. You can, th you know, one time we threw bagels over the side of the ship, and, like, one kind of one kind of shark was scared away, another kind of shark was attracted. So, you know, should you should you bring bagels with you? I don't know. It depends on the kind of shark. Um, you mentioned, if I can awkwardly segue from the idea of distressed fish water to an incidental story that comes up in that section about bears. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, okay, well, as we were saying, okay, so if your prey is normally fish, you are attracted to the scent of fish. Now there's this, 
There was a case uh, in the National Park Service in the United States where there was a, a, a bear attack, and there was speculation that the women were menstruating and that the blood had drawn the bears. And so the National Park Service or some researchers, wildlife biologists who worked for the Park Service, devised this experiment. There are actually two studies of blood, human blood, and menstrual blood and bears and, and different findings. Okay, polar bears, yes. Grizzly bears and black bears, no. Okay, polar bears, they're eating fishy things. Fishy uh, Trimethylamine, fishy scent is also vaginal scent to get a little graphic here uh, so pol- no, uh, yeah, yeah okay so so if you're if you are um, if you were you could entice a polar bear with a used tampon but not a, a black bear grizzly or a grizzly bear they're not interested and the studies have been done and they're quite entertaining <laughs> they're detailed in the book but anyway to, the bottom line is if you smell like their prey then you want to stay clear I'm Tom Barbash and you're listening to Little Adams a radio show about ideas and culture I want to talk about submarines for a bit. You mentioned that you'd, you'd managed to get out onto a submarine somewhere in the, uh, in the North Atlantic. How would you have gone off that submarine if anything had gone wrong? Depends on a number of factors. If we were somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 feet down, you can uh, go, there's an escape trunk on board, and you could actually just put on your escape suit and go out just as you in the escape suit, make your way to the surface. The suit becomes a flotation device, a little sort of mini raft. So in that case, it's you know extremely stressful, but it can be done up to 600, ideally less than 600 feet, but I think 600 feet is the, the depth, the, the maximum depth at which that has been done. Uh, if you're going down to about 2,000 feet, uh, there's the chance to get out via a submersible rescue vehicle, and there are those stationed all around the globe, hopefully no farther away than, say, uh, like seven days away, hopefully a lot less. And uh, any deeper than that, if you go down deeper than that, you're kind of SOL. <laughs> yeah. You went to um, the, the delightfully named USS Buttercup which is like a sort of training facility for submariners, and they have like a, a sort of way to simulate that escape. Yes, yeah. I, yeah, I was at, actually, there are two, there's the, the USS Buttercup, which is, is, is uh, uh, an even more um, stressful experience than the one I saw at the submarine school. The um, escape train, there's an uh, escape trainer there, and it's, a, it's an engine room, you know, like a model of an engine room, and then there are the it's, it's set up where there's a guy at the control panel who can initiate all of these very alarming leaks, and the students have to stop the leaks. And there 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 are various ways to do that. Surprisingly simple and low tech, like um, a pine plug. Okay, this is sort of like a, a you know a conical. This is just sort of like a, something you'd see in a geometry classroom. It's just a you put the point in the hole and you hammer it in, and pine absorbs water and expands a bit, so it's a pretty tight seal. So there's some of them where you can use that, or winding uh, a piece of twine, uh, or well, it's somewhere between string and rope, and you would you would wind that around the leak, so you're kind of coming up on it from the side and strangling it, you know, cutting it off. You can't just put it flat over it; it will push it back. But you can sneak up on the leak, so they. They have a number number of devices where you do that, and 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 it's cold water, and sometimes the the, the lights will go out, and you have to you have to do it in the dark, and so there the students are just trained in in ways to stop a leak and do it fast. And obviously, if you're in a submarine and you're any distance underwater, a leak is 
not like a leaking bathtub. No, 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 no. Yeah, depending, you know, how big the hole is and how the deeper you are, the more water is going to come in. Just like the pressure is just pushing in tremendous amounts of water very quickly. I mean, yeah, one of the guys who was running the simulation, the class, was talking about the USS Cole and that, you know, that big hole that was blown in the side. I mean, and they, he said we were just, they were just stuffing anything into it, like mattresses, you know, just like plug the hole quickly. Uh, whatever you have at hand, get it plugged. So, and you actually do talk about a couple of actual submarine accidents yeah. that happened. They have the, the bizarrely named USSS Tang, which has sort of named after a soft drink, yeah. and the Squalus. What happened there? Well, the the Tang torpedoed itself. Oddly enough, torpedoes are not. Uh, they, they sometimes behave erratically. The torpedo kind of turned, and the, the, at the same time, I guess that the sub was turning. Anyway, it torpe- It came around and hit the tail of the sub, and the, the Tang was the. This was the first time that there was a submariners were using the escape trunk and and the the you know the technology. They had a like a. Um, Sort of a Momsen lung, it's called. It's just it's a you know kind of a, a hood and, a, and a, a way for you to a way for you to breathe a little bit as you es- escape. But but you first you have to be in this this trunk and equalize the pressure so you can open the hatch. And that's tricky stuff because you're 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 starting to float. You've got to equalize. Your, you know your ears are, are all messed up and you're you're dealing with a lot of things at once. Plus operating the trunk and none of them had been trained and very very few of them got out. Even though the technology was there and they were at a depth at which they could escape, they couldn't. Do it they didn't know what to do and they just they tried once and they gave up and a lot of them died unnecessarily for that reason well partly for that reason but um there's now this uh, 30 foot column of water at the sub school it's called the pressurized submarine escape trainer and there's an escape trunk and you put on your suit and you do it you you, you go through the motions and you shoot up to the top and it, it it's they were, those guys were pretty nervous. I mean, I, and I don't blame them. I mean, it's a, it's an awkward thing. To, I mean, it's thirty feet of water. The, it's pretty, ex, you know, it's not extreme pressure, but it's uncomfortable. You got to be able to clear your ears, you know. And the, you've got water. You know, got the, the you're dealing with the suit and the air coming into the suit, and then you know, you, you, the hatch opens and you shoot out, and and uh, you and don't you really. Need, and you've got to remember, if you, yeah, if you have the suit, you can breathe. But they they have them do it without the suit, and in that case, you have to shout. As you go up, to make sure you're exhaling. Otherwise, if you hold your breath, you you rupture parts of the lung. So they got to remember to to shout uh, as they go up. Uh, so so yeah, it's it's a little bit risky. They wouldn't let me do it. I wanted to do it. I was secretly relieved when they said no. <laughs> Just to finish off, there one more question. So almost inevitably, you end up at the end of this book at an autopsy. Everybody that's killed in military action ends up in an autopsy. How are they trying to, you know, use those bodies to gain knowledge to stop other people dying? Yeah, there's a program called um, Feedback to the Field. And what happens is they take cases, um, not every single one, but ones that might be helpful or illustrative. And they, uh, they have what's called a combat mortality conference. And I was at that. I wasn't actually at an autopsy. Mm. They wouldn't permit someone to be at an autopsy. But the mortality conference, that is a teleconference um, between the medical examiner who did the autopsy, and the autopsy includes all of the life-saving equipment that is left in place, whether it's a, you know, a tourniquet 
or you know, needle decompression for a collapsed lung, whatever it is, that's left in place. So the medical examiner can see if it was placed properly, if the equipment's working the way the manufacturer said it would, and basically just is there, did anything go wrong here that could have, you know, had it not gone wrong, saved the life? And that information is given to the medical provider in the field, the people that actually worked on this soldier or marine. And so they get this, this feed, direct feedback, which is great. It's not... You know, not like waiting for someone to publish a paper where two years down the line this information will make its way to the community of medical providers. And by that time, they're using different equipment or the situation has changed or we're in a different war. So it gives them immediate feedback, which has been great. So that's it's just interesting to sit in on that meeting. Very sobering. That's where we'll have to leave it. So I've been talking to Mary Roach. We've been talking about her book, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War, which is out now from One World. Mary, it's been wonderful having you back. Thanks for telling me about it. Oh, you bet. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.